And so today is our third week in 1 John, and we will be going through relating to the world. So we're still in 1 John. Today is the third and last week that we will be in 1 John. And I think often as, you know, often as Christians, sometimes we're okay just like, as long as me and God are good, we're set. Like, I don't really need to worry about anything else. Or as long as me and my buddy, we're good, you know, we're set. But how often do we actually think as a community, as a Christian witness that is here on the earth, how ought we to relate to the world? Often we just feel like as long as our church is doing well and as long as my QTs are going well, there's nothing else that I ought to worry about. But we will be very challenged today by 1 John in how we ought to relate to the world. Sorry, just a quick break. Is it possible to, uh, I feel like it's a little bit stroby. I feel like I need to uh, dance for you guys or something. Or we could switch just to, um, to a praise set, um, praise scene. We'll just continue, just ignore the lights. It's just extra stimulus for you guys who are falling asleep today because you watched the game last night. So we're going to jump right into 1 John 2.9. We're backtracking a little bit to some of the verses that we read about two weeks ago. And so we're going to move on. Uh-huh. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. So if we review what we were talking about two weeks ago, John was basically saying, look, I don't, I don't care how spiritual you say you are. I don't care how pious you say you are. You cannot be a Christian. If you hate your brother, there's just no way you cannot be dwelling in the light. You cannot be worshiping the God who is light. And at the same time, do the deeds of darkness. And one of those deeds is hating your brother. You can, if you cannot love your brother, then you are not in God. And he makes it so clear. He draws such a clear line in the sand, almost enough to make us uncomfortable. And then not just that, he goes on to say, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So here we see a picture of a life that is absent of the God that is light. You hate your brother in the darkness. You live and you walk in darkness. You live the life of someone who is blind and enveloped in darkness. And then part of the passage that we read earlier today, it reads, then John, I mean, sorry, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, if you guys are following this, it is not like we're not talking like just if you are a little child or just if you are, you know, a father. Like if you're a mother, you're like, okay, that that doesn't apply to. That's not what we're talking about here. He's actually addressing everybody and he's hitting different people of different walks of life in different points in their journey with God. And he is saying, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for two days or for 20 years. Like, this applies to you. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, and you have known him who is from the beginning. He continues on to say, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you're strong. And the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So John is reminding them of who they are in Christ. He's grabbing them by the shoulders and he's saying, look, look, you've known him. You've overcome the evil one. The word of God and the spirit of God is dwelling within you. It's residing within you. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ before he drops this bomb. And this is what he says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Now, I almost wish this wasn't in the Bible, you know, because it's a very tough message to preach. You wish that John would be a little bit more forgiving and a little bit more lenient, a little bit more compromising, and he would be a little bit more diplomatic. And you say, well, look, as long as it's not outright sin, like you okay. You're like, okay, in the gray area. I wish this is what John said, but he is outright making a really bold statement. And if you're not offended by this yet, you will be in a minute. He continues on to say, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the father, but from the world. He's basically saying, look, other people can live this way. They can live and act, make decisions according to the lust of the eyes and in congruence to what they want to accumulate in this life. It could be for their resume, for their bank account, for what their social media account looks like, for how many friends they have, for what kind of reputation they have, how much respect they get from people, how much jealousy they inspire from other people around them. He's saying other other people can live like this, but not so with you. You are no longer blind. You're no longer living according to the rules of this world. You're no longer a slave to the cravings of the flesh. You are no longer defined, but what you have or what you do, these are the cravings of sinful man, the man without God. And we're going to take just a moment, an uncomfortable moment, to pause, and we're going to get a little bit honest and uncomfortable today. Let me ask you this. If someone were to take an inventory of your life right now, not after you have your act all together, not after you've cleaned everything, like right now, where you are right now, if someone wants to take an inventory of your life, how you spend your time, where your affections are, how you spend your money, where you put your focus on, what is your priority, how you invest yourself, your thought life, your decision-making process, if someone was to take an inventory of your life today, what would they conclude is a driving force behind your life? What would they conclude? How much of it is driven by God? How much of it is driven 
just like everybody else in the world, by the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what you have and what you do. How much of it is driven by the desires of the world? Would the person making an inventory of your life be able to look at your life and conclude, this is a person who is free from these things? Would they be able to do that? Now, John is very clear here and very confrontational. And this is a very politically incorrect message to preach, especially today. John is saying, this is what drives the world. This is what drives people who are in the darkness, the lust of the eyes. So what you covet, what you envy, what you crave, which someone else possesses, something that you look at and you desire. And second is the pride that comes from what you have and what you accomplish. It is the self-made man. It is the American dream. It is your resume. It is your 10-year plan and what your life ought to look like. So having things and doing things and being ambitious and being driven, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. We need to clarify that. It's not an evil thing to want to get ahead in your career. It's not an evil thing to want to settle down and have a family. It's not an evil thing to want to succeed in your um, field of expertise. It's not an evil thing. But John corners us with the uncomfortable question of how much of your life is driven by this? How much of your time? How much of your decisions? How much of your 10-year plans, your 20-year plans? How much of your finances? How much of that is driven by the exact same thing that drives someone who does not have God in their lives? And this is the very uncomfortable question that we need to be confronted by before we talk about how we ought to relate to the world. So we can't get to B unless we've dealt with A. And A is the state of our hearts. What do we idolize? What do we worship when no one else is looking? Outside of the one hour and a half or two hours that you're here at church, who is it that you worship? Are you living a life according to the kingdom of this world or according to the kingdom of God? And he continues on to say the world and its desires, they're going to pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, let me make it a little bit more tangible to us today. Let me ask this question. How much of your life is shaped by what we call the American dream? The American dream can look like, all right, I'm going to succeed in my field. Hopefully, I'll be a white-collar worker in a special field. Hopefully, it pays well. You're going to have a family. Two point, how many kids is it now? Two point, two point five kids. One point five now. Oh, that's, we're in bad shape. Okay. yeah, 1.5 kids, one and a half kids, uh, hopefully have a dog, you know, have a settled home, have like a 401k, is it 401? You can tell I don't have one, right? Okay, 401k, 
Like you have retirement savings, you're set for life. You have a trajectory like in front of you and you see it. That's the American dream. Let me contextualize it to like, okay, that's not me. I'm, I'm not that material. Okay. Let me make it the, the young hipster American dream. It's like my, my social media account looks like this. My wardrobe looks like this. My friend group looks like this. This is what my weekends look like. This is what my nights out look like. Sorry. Nights out, you, you get the visual. Um, this is what um, my career should look like. Like my job needs to be demanding, but not so demanding. Like I need to have time to travel and discover myself. And you know what I mean? Like this is just as American dream as it gets. It's just a different form of it. Now, let's think about the Christian American dream. Ah, now we're getting uncomfortable. The Christian, there's, there is such a thing as a Christian American dream. It's the same thing. Just put a Christian spin on it. It looks like, okay, you attend services. You are paying your taxes. You're tithing to the church. You have friends that, you know, are not associated with like those kind of people. Like my friends are clean and, you know, like I have a nice family that I'm raising within the church and I serve in this ministry and I do all my QTs religiously and I've read the Bible from cover to cover and it looks different, but it is still the same thing, except with a Christian spin on it. Now you can take it even further. What is a hipster Christian American dream? Okay. So it's like combo of all combos. It's like my church is like super hip and we do this kind of music and we have these kind of lights that are strobing during the sermon. (laughs) I mean, you know, like I wear jeans that are ripped, you know, like, you know, like it, Again, it is the same thing, the same thing, just packaged in a different way, still driven by the lust of the eyes and what you have and what you do. It is the very same thing, just a different version of it. You can tweak it however you want to fit whatever circumstances you are in. But if you were to ask yourself, how much of it is driven by the values by the purposes, by the mission of the kingdom of God, even if it looks Christian, even if it sounds Christian, these are questions that we need to be confronted by. You can look like a Christian for 30 years and not be a Christian and not be living according to the kingdom of God. So when we're talking about becoming a relevant church, that's like such a, you know, hot trendy word now, like, I want to be a relevant church. I want to be a missional church. You know, I want to be an effective church that knows how to communicate with the world. Before we even talk about those things, the first question we must ask ourselves is when push comes to shove, who has our allegiance? Who has our worship? Who has our affection? Who has our finances, our time, our focus? Who receives all those things? Is it the world? Is it my own desires? Or is it God? Now, this is not a new question. Like, this is not the first time this has ever been asked in human history. Jesus himself, he was asked this question by some Pharisees in Matthew 22. So they try to, like, corner him by asking him kind of like a, you know, a really controversial question. And they wanted to have him answer whether they ought to play along with, uh, you know, the, the government of this world by paying taxes, right? And they're trying to corner him into saying something that will compromise him. And so they're saying, look, 
Like you say you belong to God and your allegiance is to God, so should we pay taxes, right? This is like a a way in which they are trying to corner him. And they're trying to see whether he's going to say, all right, yeah, you do have to pay taxes. And they're going to say, okay, that means that you are giving towards the governments of this world. And if he were to say, you know what, shun all these, you know, worldly rules and laws of the land, then they're going to say, well, you're not a law-abiding person. How can you call yourself righteous? So they're trying to put him in a very compromising situation. And this is how Jesus responds to them. He says, you hypocrites, he's not going soft. So you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him the denarius And he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? And they replied, Caesar's. And then this is what he says. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? In other words, he's saying, Caesar is owed your taxes, but God is owed your life. God has owed everything. God has owed every breath, every thought, your affections, your dreams. Your utmost allegiance belongs to God. And how often do we get these two things mixed up? We give God just however much we feel like he's owed. And the rest, our careers, our future plans, our, you know, our, 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 our dreams, all these things, they get all of us. We give our lives to these things. How many times do we get these two things switched around? Jesus is being very clear. He says, there's things that are going to be owed to the world for sure. He's not saying don't pay your taxes. Please pay your taxes, by the way. He's, he's not saying don't pay your taxes. He's saying, obey the law, but make sure that you put it in its proper place. Make sure you've got perspective Make sure you know what your priorities are. Make sure you know what is owed some things and what is owed everything. Abide by the law. Be a good citizen. Be a blessing in your sphere of influence. Be a light in your workplace. But remember through all these things, remember who owns your life. This is a very challenging proposition that Jesus is making to all of us. He's saying this coin that has the picture of Caesar, you can give him that. But this person that I've made that bears the image of Christ, you got to give him all of that. You carry the image of God. You belong to God. So now that we've settled this issue, Now we can begin to talk about how we ought to relate to the world as individuals and as a church. Until this point, we can't really talk about relevance. We cannot talk about how we affect our workplaces. We cannot talk about what kind of family culture we're going to build in our homes. We cannot talk about these things until we've first addressed the heart. And so now we are ready to talk about how we ought to relate to the world as both individuals and also as a church. There are different paradigms when it comes to how the church relates to the world. And we're just going to go through three different ones, okay? And uh, the first one is the church is analogous to culture. It is so enmeshed, so intertwined, so indistinguishable 
from the world that is no different. You see the same things that you see out in the world inside the church. The very same things that drive people. The very same things that make the decisions for you. And this is what happens when the church is analogous or the same thing as culture. I'm going to show you some very sophisticated pictures here um, that I drew. So if this pastoring thing doesn't work out, I'm, I'm going to take my money to the arts, okay? This is the first one, okay? So the world and the church are buddies. Like they are, you know, shoulder to shoulder, they're buddies. And the church is looking over to the world. They're like, we're cool, yeah? Like we... we we, we can hang together. We can do things together. We're, 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 we're homeboys, right? Like we, we, we're tight. Another thing that can happen is when the church feels like they're catching up to the world. Now think about this for a second. Think about how this applies to media and entertainment. Think about how that applies to media and entertainment. How much of Christian media and entertainment... How much of it does it feel like it's catching up to the standards of the world? How much of it is compromising values in order to fit in to the world? And in some ways, it feels like the world has the head start. And the church is scrambling, trying to become relevant, trying to be just as good as the world and the world's standards. So this is what happens when the church is analogous to the culture. Think about this now, not in a corporate sense. Think about it in an individual sense. And this is going to be a little bit more of a challenge for, uh, for us who kind of struggle with pleasing man. You know, we don't want to really stand out too much as a Christian in our secular workplaces, in our schools. Like, we don't offend anybody. Like, we, are, we just want to blend in as much as possible. And, like, inside, you're like, I want them to know that Christians are cool too. You know, like there's a, there's something inside you like, yeah, like I am not old fashioned and I'm not outdated and I still speak your language and I still know how to relate to you. And there's this sense of like, accept me, accept me. I'm a Christian, but I want to live according to your rules. I want to live according to your values. I want to live up to your expectations. And this is something that many of us have to confront in our own lives. How much of that is a man pleasing spirit? How many times do we compromise in order to fit in and feel accepted by the world? We're not just trying to play along according to the rules and values of the world, but we're striving to excel at the game. This is what happens when the church is analogous to culture. It is so, so intertwined, so one with the culture that there's no distinction. If someone were to see you outside of these four walls, they could never tell that you're a Christian like that. Now, this is a second paradigm that I want us to look through. This is when the church is against culture. Okay? The church is so completely against or isolated from culture. You want nothing to do with the culture. So two things can happen here. One is the church buries its head in the sand. And the world is like, hey, hey, hey. And they're like, I can't hear you. La, la, la. You know, the church does wants nothing to do with politics. The church wants nothing to do with social justice. The church wants nothing to do with education. The church wants nothing to do with all the crazy things that are happening right now in our world. We don't want to speak up because that has nothing to do with us. We're not of this world. No, you take your problems over there. 
I got my own problems. Like, I don't need to deal with you. And the church somehow becomes isolated, becomes out of touch with reality and the historical moment that God has placed them in. Something else that can happen. The church is saying, ah, don't touch me. Like, you're unclean. You know, this is, let me ask you a question. Is this how Jesus operated when he walked this earth? No. This is the, the, the paradigm that many Pharisees and, and law keepers had. It was this, that I am, through ritual cleaning, through sacrifices, I am clean. Now, the moment I touch something unclean, that uncleanliness kind of, like, jumps on me and becomes part of me. That's why they say, like, don't touch certain things. Don't see certain things. Don't touch, a, like, a, a dead body. Don't, you know, like, they have all these different rules to ensure that you are not contaminated by something that is unclean. Their whole paradigm is like, I want to keep myself clean. I want to keep myself clean. The less, the less I, contact that I have with the world, the better I'm off. The more pure I am. This is what drove the Levite and the, the teacher of the law to walk on the other side when they saw a Samaritan lying on the side of the road, right? They're saying, he looks dead. The moment I touch that dead body to you know, make sure that, you know, are they dead? Are they alive? To, uh, let me help them. The moment they come into contact with it, I become unclean. And they didn't want that. And so that's what drove them to cross to the other side and continue on their way. Now, is this how Jesus operated when he lived on this earth? He had it very backwards somehow. He had this notion that I carry the light and the light is always going to pierce through darkness. The moment I come into contact with darkness, darkness doesn't get on me. My light gets on them. It's a very different paradigm. He's saying there's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. And when those two things come head to head, only one can win. And that is light. That is the paradigm from which he operated. This is how he could sit with tax collectors and prostitutes. This is how he could hold the hand of that dead girl and tell her Tabitha Kuhn. Like, uh, be raised, stand up. Like, no other teacher of the law would have done that. They would never have touched a dead body. But this is the paradigm that Jesus had that allowed him to be in the midst of tax collectors, of prostitutes, of people that had ill reputation. This is what drove him to touch the sick, the leprous, the dead. He had this notion that the light that I carry is meant to touch the darkness around me. So now let's look at a third paradigm. We're talking about the church in the culture. The church in the midst of the culture. The values, the purposes, the identity of the church, it's not only distinct, but it also influences the world, affecting it, informing it, challenging it, confronting it. This is what it would look like. Ta-da! The church is surrounded in the world. It's not off to the side somewhere. It's not saying, don't touch me. It's in the midst of the world and it's shining a light to the world all around it. It's going to challenge a lot of values of the world. And that's part of the purpose of the church. Have you ever thought, like, why doesn't Jesus just take me to heaven the moment I accept him into my life? Like, what does he keep me here for another 
you know, it can be anywhere from a few days to like 80 years, right? Like, why does he keep me here? Why does he just take me to be with him? Like, is there something that I need to do here? Yes, there's something that you need to be doing here. The church is the witness of God in the midst of the darkness. That's the way God designed it. The light is supposed to be shining in the midst of the darkness. The church is supposed to be a city upon a hill. It's not supposed to be hidden under a bowl. It's supposed to shine its light to every person that comes into contact with it. And as a church that is called to be in the midst of the culture, we're also going to be called to do a very countercultural thing, something that's not going to make sense to anybody in the world. And that is to serve the world without any agendas, Without any, like, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Tit for tat. We're called to live a very countercultural life. A life that doesn't give itself over to the lusts of the eyes and boasting what we have and what we can do as a church. But we're called to first demonstrate the same selfless sacrifice and service that Jesus demonstrated while he lived here on this earth. We're called to serve. The world. That is our calling. It's not just to gather every weekend here and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. No, the world out there is looking for light. The world out there is looking for rescue. Is looking for something that will put an end to all the cravings, all the frenzy, all the, all the maddening, you know, like running after this American dream. The world is waiting for a witness of a people who live according to a different kingdom. They're looking for a trace of Jesus in the church today. So this should be very challenging to all of us. This is what it looks like for us to be in our workplaces tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., that's going to be you. You're going to be shining the light of Christ in your cubicle, you're going to be serving those around you selflessly. And that is the calling of a church, not just to gather, but also to scatter. So here's some important things we need to keep in mind as we talk about how we relate to the world. The first thing is that the church, we are set apart and distinct. We cannot say that we're the same as the world. There's something very particular that marks each and every one of you as a child of God. You have the Holy Spirit residing in you. You do not live according to the patterns of this world. You're being renewed constantly through the washing of the word. The spirit is working at you day in and day out to sanctify you and make you look more and more like Christ every single day, whether you feel it, whether you see it or you don't. We are called to be set apart. We're not supposed to look just like the world. We're not supposed to fit in seamlessly to the world. That is not our calling. We're called to be distinct and set apart. And at the same time, we're also called to be invasive and influential. We cannot be invasive and influential if we're all to ourselves. If we're all about just, I'm going to take care of myself, maybe my family, maybe my church, but nothing beyond that. That's not what the church is called to be. We're called to be invasive. We're supposed to infiltrate the world and influence it for the kingdom of God. That is what the church is called to be. 
And as we are doing that, we always need to be reminded that we are accountable to a higher authority, much higher than the law of this land, much higher than your president, than your congressman, than whatever, than the IRS, than, you know, much higher than any of these authorities of the world. You are going to be held accountable to higher standards by a higher authority. When you die, the person you're going to be facing is not a judge here somewhere, is not a president here somewhere, or a lawmaker somewhere, or your pastor, or your parents. It's going to be God. God is going to weigh your life. God, God is going to look at your life. That is the person that you're going to be accountable to. No matter what the trend is right now. No matter whether your friend gets away with something that you feel like you can't. No matter how disjointed and how distant the things of this world seem from the values of the kingdom. No matter how different it feels like to live as a Christian here on this world. You will be held accountable to a higher authority. And last thing is we... As a church, we remain firm in the face of change. Let me tell you something. Things are going to change. Like right now, things that look cool, they're going to be obsolete. Like five years down the line. In Korea, the timeline is like a lot shorter. It's like two months down the line, right? Everything's really fast and accelerated here. There's going to be new trends. There's going to be new things like, oh, it's okay to do this even as a Christian. There's always going to be like new things that are going to challenge what you believe in about God and about yourself and about the church. Those things are always going to be ebbing and flowing all around us. The world is always going to change. But in the midst of that, we're being called to the same standard. You're being called to the standard that God has set for us in his word. You know, and at the beginning of today's message, we watched you know, the short clip of the sunrise And so I'd like us to leave today with that kind of image seared into our minds. Proverbs 4.18, it says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So the sun breaking through the darkness, it isn't just what God did in Genesis 1, when he says, let there be light, and light just broke into the darkness. It's not just what Jesus did when he stepped here onto the earth with the beginning of the new Testament, but it is also the picture of the church, the righteous ones, the ones who are called by his name, washed in his blood, called to live according to a different kingdom. It is the picture of the church invading and piercing through the darkness of the world all around us. Now, lest we think that it's going to be super easy, like it's going to be all rainbows and butterflies and unicorns, like lest we think that it's going to be like that, John then moves on to talk about, for several verses, he talks about the coming of the Antichrist. At the heels of this message of like, do not live according to this world. And then he goes on for several verses about, there's going to be ways in which you're going to be challenged that you have no idea about right now. There's going to be trials, temptations that you can't even foresee. And in the midst of that, you're called to stand firm and not give in to the desires of the world. 
He ends the section with, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unshamed before him at his coming. So John doesn't give us the luxury of just sitting back and waiting for things to pan out. As if the culture of the world would say like, yeah, sure, shine your light on us. You know, like we, we love this. As if the world is going to offer no resistance to the light of Christ at work through his church. In fact, if you've read on in the Bible, the end of the Bible is written by the same author that wrote First John. The end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It talks about a coming darkness that humanity will have to face in the end times that is unparalleled in its severity and unprecedented in its global pervasiveness everywhere you look. Everywhere you look, you're not going to be able to escape it. But here is the promise that as you continue in him, as you abide in the vine, as you live this life in the light, shining the light of Christ, into the darkness, as you serve the culture, then the, the culture around you where it needs serving, as you confront the culture around you where it needs confronting, the church that is built on the rock of Christ will overcome the evil one. The kingdom will advance, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That is the promise that God has given us in his word. We cannot stand firm in that promise and that identity and that steadfastness in the midst of trials if we haven't settled in our hearts. We are living according to a different standard. We're not going to be weighed by the world. We're going to be weighed by the word of God. It's going to be this that defines how I've lived my life. Whether I've done it well or I haven't. I haven't. What I've lived according to, what I've built my life on. Now, as I was preparing for today's message, there was this song that I stumbled on while preparing. And these are some of the lyrics that really stuck with me. It's from a a pretty recent song called Blackout by Stephanie Gretzinger. And there's a part that says this, you can't turn out a light shining from the inside. We are made of light and the world didn't give it and it can't take it away. So navigating this life, our workplaces, our careers, our families, our personal issues, it's not easy. I don't think the Bible ever said it would be. It's never meant to be easy on this side of eternity. We live in a broken and fallen world, and that's just the reality of it. But here's the hope that we find in 1 John, that we are one with a God who is light We are one with one another as brothers and sisters who are walking in the light. We are one with a family of God called to live a life of radical love and selfless service. Called to make some serious damage to the kingdom of darkness until the day we appear before him confident and unashamed. This is the hope that we find in the word. Things are not going to be easy, but we've been given everything that we need. The world with all its temptations, the world with all its compromises, it cannot take what Christ has given you freely. And that is what we stand on today.